Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Phoebe Bridger's music is sad. Don't get me wrong. Songs about loss, breakups, trauma, mental health, the whole kit and caboodle. But she's also one of those rare songwriters that can write those songs and still make you laugh while you're crying. It's that gift that's made Phoebe Bridgers one of the most acclaimed songwriters of her time. She'll tell you why she thinks funny and sad actually go hand in hand and why she thinks people confuse sadness with intelligence. Phoebe Bridgers coming up. Plus, Shane Ghostkeeper grew up hearing old country music, a music he liked for sure, but more the music of his family. So after a career of making experimental rock, Shane has a new record of country songs called Songs for My People, which he sees as a gift to his family and his community. He'll be here to tell you about that. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Welcome to the show. We are uh, airing, or re-airing, I should say, some of our favorite conversations over the past year here on Q, in case you missed them the first time around. Also, reminder, if you subscribe to our podcast, you get access to our archive of interviews over the past little while. Plug. Done. Let's start out uh, today's show by listening to a song. Take a listen. Phoebe Bridgers and I See You off her Grammy-nominated album, Punisher. So Phoebe Bridgers, about as big a songwriter as you can be right now. Her band, Boy Genius, has one of the biggest-selling tours of the year, right up there with Taylor Swift and, and your Beyoncé's. I just checked before recording this. Uh, her songs have hundreds of millions of streams, nine million monthly listeners. But maybe even more important than that, she's become... Uh, a generational artist, an important artist to a generation of music listeners. She has this ability to write incredibly sad songs filled with really ultra-specific personal references like neighbors and therapy and relationships. Tell me if this makes sense. She writes so specifically that it becomes universal for her listeners. Like, it's so personal to her, yet so personal to the people who listen to the music, too. And as I mentioned, very funny. I got to talk to Phoebe Bridgers over the phone last year. She had just finished doing a gig at the Coachella Music Festival in California. It was nice to get a chance to catch up with her. Here's my conversation with Phoebe Bridgers. Hi, Phoebe. Howdy. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Pretty good. Where are you? I'm in Phoenix, Arizona at the minute. Is it really hot there? Uh, (laughs) Extremely. Um, But I don't know. It's nice. It's like I love the desert. Congrats on, on on Coachella, by the way. Thank you. I heard this great story. I thought you might be able to tell. The first time you went to Coachella, it was with your mom. <laughs> yes, um, probably the first like five times I went to Coachella was with my mom. Um, she, yeah, my mom like took me to a lot of music. I think just to make sure that I was safe, which I appreciated, um, and. Yeah, and she would like hang out and kind of like festival mom in the background of lots of fun concerts. What's it like going to Coachella with your mom? Because I've never been, but it feels like a, it feels like sort of a, a rowdy time. It's a rowdy time, but I was like straight edge in high school, so I don't think she was super worried about me like being that rowdy. Um, yeah, she's pretty game for whatever, but but we'd pretty much like you know like high five and separate for all day so that I could go to the front of stuff and she could lay on the grass. When you were when you started out writing songs when you were a kid, you were like ten, right? Like, what were you writing about when you're ten? Um, I I was like writing about how like different I was and stuff. I'm like a white girl from Pasadena, which is like a pretty nice suburb. So, uh, <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I was like di- diving into some like past life pain or something. <laughs> <laughs> going going through your past selves and trying to figure out where the angst might be coming from. Yeah, exactly. So you, it was always personal songs right from the beginning? Yeah. And where did you, when you played them for your family, like, how did they take it? Um, 
you know, I honestly can't really remember. I think I just was trying to make myself happy. I also remember like, I thought like plagiarism wasn't as big of a deal when I was little. So like, I would just literally steal verses from other people and put them into my own songs. And then I remember like realizing that that was bad when my best friend was like, oh, you learned that song from the radio. And I was like, oh shit, like people know when I do that, you know? Yeah. You can't put Last Kiss by Pearl Jam into your second, second verse. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I wanted to play one of your early songs for you just to talk a little bit about, about personal songwriting. Just take a listen to this. That is Motion Sickness by Phoebe Bridgers from her 2017 debut album, Stranger in the Alps. So as I mentioned in the introduction, like the storytelling in your music feels really specific, you know, but it still manages to feel universal. When you are about to put out a song that has sort of intimate details in it or specific details in it about your life, how do you feel right before it comes out? Uh, Usually by the time it's about to come out, Everybody who could possibly be offended by it has heard it. Um, and I find that like the the more time I have to sit with a song, the less worried about that I am. Like I just play a trick where I'm like, write it like nobody's gonna hear it and then worry about it later. Um, and I haven't done much editing at all uh, to save people's feelings and you know my feelings about people and situations change over time, but I have yet to to feel any sort of regret or even nerves about playing it. Do you, you said you send, you often, if you write a personal song, you'll send it to the people before yes. it comes out? Yeah. What are, what are those moments like when you're, when you do that? Uh, kind of like, I mean, with that song in particular, it was kind of nerve wracking. Like I was still on speaking terms with Ryan Adams, who oh, I was yeah. talking about yeah. at the time. And, uh, like, he was being nice to me, and I uh, felt so bad. Like, I had been angry at him for a long time, and then we kind of reconnected, and, and then I was like, oh, man, like, I already I already moved the ball in motion. Like, we hate each other. Um, and then felt really bad. But, like, he was weirdly fine about it. Um, obviously, like, <laughs> a lot of stuff has happened in the interim since that conversation, but he was like, He's like, I don't care. It's a great song. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there. I'm, I, I am more broadly interested in sort of like the impact of writing songs in, in, about real people. Hmm. I don't think I've really had that experience. I mean, I've had, I've like written some sensitive songs about people that are still in my life. Uh, and yeah, always kind of like the same nerves, but but like they've always ended well. So I think maybe I'm teaching myself the lesson of like, I think maybe I'm a little bit nicer than I give myself credit for in in the writing, you know. Does it change now that there's more people listening to your music? Like, are you able to write without thinking about releasing it still? Mm, I try, um, but I'm pretty specific. So it, the only thing that I have a hang up about is like sounding dumb. Like, I don't want to say a bunch of exact details of something that's happening that everybody knows happened you know so like i don't know if if i take a trip to um i don't know big ben and then there's a bunch of photos i don't and they're all online then i don't want to be like i went to big ben and i took a bunch of photos you know what i mean so <laughs> i'll be like i know exactly what that song is about exactly and then and then there's nothing to find and i hate that why do you hate that? You want you want people to find things in your music? I think I've always had a problem with that with or not a problem, quote unquote, but it kind of it it's a different experience to hear your friends' music when you know intimate details about their life. So the more people know about me, the more effect that kind of has like where like my friend Harrison Whitford is a songwriter and he'll say something in a song and I'm like, "Oh, I know exactly what that is." Um and then, but before we met, when I was listening to his music, I was like, what is all this crazy poetry? And like, why did he choose to say that word? And um, 
just some of the mystery kind of goes away. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I just, I'm conscientious of it. Yeah, I guess that's that's the result of becoming a more public person through writing private songs. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who had a breakup song written about them that became a hit. <laughs> that's awesome. And I, every time I would, would come on the radio, I would, I would think, I know exactly why the song was written. I know exactly what he did. Is it like mean? Yeah, like it was like he, he, was a, he cheated on his girlfriend. Oh, yeah, then that's tight. And then she, she wrote a song about it and the song became a really big hit. And uh, I fell for him. <laughs> I fell for it, you know, because it, it became like a Canada hit to the point where you couldn't really avoid it, you know? That's awesome. Don't f*** with us. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you get out of writing songs that come from a sadder place, like a sadder emotion in you? Um, I have like dissociative tendencies. So I think I write it and I'm like, that was pretty. And then like, a year later, I'm like, oh, shit, this is actually really heavy. I've, I've like this sounds corny, but I swear to God, like everybody, everybody just know that I'm being vulnerable right now. But I was recording and I was like surrounded by my friends. It's different if I'm by myself. But like I was recording with my band and like cried <laughs> for the first time singing something. And everybody's like, dude, what? It's like you've never heard this before. And I was like, I kind of haven't like. When I, I think when I write it, I just go into this, like, this, I don't know. Like, I don't even know where it comes from, honestly. I'm not thinking about it that hard. And then later I find, like, double meanings and stuff in it, you know? I had someone tell me one time that they were able to predict things in their songs. Like, they were they, oh, they would write songs yeah. and they'd be able to predict their relationship breaking down or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I've written breakup songs before, broken up with people. I, like, like I said about the personal songs stuff like it kind of just weirdly becomes more true the later it gets and also i've like i have a song on my last album punisher called graceland 2 which is like a wish you know it's basically like about that idea it's like um it has a lyric about songs coming true and and like the lyrics are like i'm asking for it if they do but it means both I'm asking for it in a bad way because all my songs are negative and it's also like I'm asking for it as in like I'm begging for it because this is actually a positive song, you know? So she picks a direction It's 90 in Memphis Turns up the music So thoughts don't intrude Predictably winds up Thinking of Elvis And wonders if What does it mean when you say you're a, a bit dis- disassociative when you write songs? Um, I just mean it's like I'm not feel. I think when I'm too emotional when I'm writing, it always ends up really bad. And when I'm a little bit more removed and like not feeling it 100% when I'm writing it, just kind of like writing whatever comes, uh, those tend to be kind of the heaviest songs. When you're writing what whatever comes, do you write every day? Uh, I mean, broadly, sure. Uh, but but like, but like, I go through like heavy phases every couple months. I'm pretty slow. And is it like you're just kind of waiting to see what comes out? And that and then that, that's why you're able to disassociate from it a little bit? Like it just kind of flows out of you? Yeah, exactly. So like maybe I'll have like a little idea three days before I sit down to write. And then I, when I put it all together, I don't really even see how heavy it is until later. Right. I, I get that. I, it kind of sounds like when you go to therapy and you start telling one story and then you end up saying a bunch of stuff you didn't even know you felt. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I read an interview where you were talking about your relationship with being known for sad music and about how capitalism commodifies women's pain. And you said something like, um, when you write music, if it's true, it's useful. But if it starts to feel like you're playing a character, I think it can get dangerous, especially if that character is very sad. I was a bit struck by that. Can, can you tell me more about that? I mean, maybe I'd rephrase dangerous. It's just kind of boring to me. You know, like I think this whole, like, believe it or not, like when I feel down, I'm actually like trying to get better, you know? So I think, I think the thing that's been commodified is the like, oh, like 
and I felt this way before, like I'll always feel this way. And you know, like I can't find happiness. It's like, well, I hope that's not true. You know? Um, and I think, uh, like when people write about it too much, it's like, it's like, as if you're, um, as if everybody like knows everything about you, but, but I think, you know, there's something to be said for, and I talk about this with my friends all the time. Like people just think you're smarter if you're sad. People think Uh, you're smarter if you're sad. Yeah. There's like, I think that like peppy love songs get kind of a bad rap as being dumb. Um, and I think my next challenge in my life is to like have a like way to write about happiness that doesn't make me cringe. Why do you think we value sad songs like that? Like, why do you think we equate it with intelligence? I mean, it's like self-protective, I think. And just like culturally, like think about every nihilist ever or, I guess it's not nihilism to be emo, but, um, (laughs) but like, yeah, I think you associate like darkness with being an intellectual or something. Um, but I think that's such a narrow lens and I'm guilty of it too. I think I'm guilty of it as a fan, like I, as, as a fan of really, really sad music, um, and like, you know, old kind of traditional singers and, and people who sing old folk music. Sometimes I'll listen to the song and I'll be really moved by it and I'll feel a little bit of guilt afterwards because I'll realize that they were just probably pretty sick. Mm, Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, I I think there, I mean, there's this whole other part of the commodified bit, which is like, you know, we listen to Kurt Cobain and we listen to Elliot Smith and, you know, we don't think about all the people along the way who were like, who saw it happening and tried to help, you know? Like, like we, we, um, I don't know. I like appreciate the art very much, but I think the saddest Elliot Smith songs are like the happy ones. Like say yes, you know. I'm in love with the world through the eyes of a girl who's still around the morning after. We broke up a month ago and I grew up. I didn't know. I love what Phoebe had to say there about the sort of, how could I say, the fetishization or commodification of sadness and maybe the lack of empathy that comes with that. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to my conversation with the singer-songwriter Phoebe Bridgers from spring of last year. She's one of the most lauded songwriters of this generation because she's able to do something that not everyone can do. Her songs can be devastatingly sad, but also kind of funny. I don't mean like honk your nose and spray water out of a flower funny. You're not, you're not going to laugh out loud. But um, she has a way, maybe the best way of putting it is she has a way of expressing both the absurdity and tragedy of life in the same song. Kind of like, you know, Fred Eaglesmith is funny or John Prine is funny, that kind of thing. So I wanted to play Phoebe one of her songs that I thought was a good example of that. Take a listen. People always say that they have no idea what I'm talking about um, in that song, but I think actually every lyric of that song is almost entirely literal, except for the very last one. Um, it's about like driving up the five freeway, which is how I got to my grandpa's house when I was a kid um, from LA. And it's like, you know, it can be eight hours um, up there. So I was just writing about um, like all the things that you see on that drive and, and what would happen if the world was ending because there was this one time that I was driving up and saw a SpaceX launch and I was driving by myself. And this was like, I don't know, like this was over, you know, seven or eight years ago. So the, like the LA certainly was not warned <laughs> that there was going to be something that looked like a huge spaceship in the sky. So I like pulled over and was like, my life is changing. Like, everything is changing right now. Like, there's an alien here. Fully. Like, I fully was my whole heart. You, you can, like, Google it. It's crazy looking. But 
Um, and then it actually happened years later in 2018. I was on tour with Connor Oberst and we were at this winery and we knew there was going to be a SpaceX launch and it looked exactly the same. And, and we put those photos on the back of our uh, band's album. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all literal. And people, people take it, people are trying to find the, the deep meaning in it. Or yeah, people are like, what is this about? I'm like, everything uh, is just what happened. <laughs> can, can I ask you an overthinky songwriter question about that song? Hell yeah. So as much as it's like a, a, I was quite moved by the song, I also find myself laughing at parts of it. And I think the relationship between songwriters who write devastatingly sad songs and are also very funny in real life like it happens way more than it doesn't happen. Like I know way more incredibly sad songwriters who are really funny than I know incredibly sad songwriters who are kind of sad when they talk to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I talked to a, a kind of a Canadian example of this a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, and I asked him about it. I was like, you know what? I feel kind of dumb asking this question, but I'm going to ask it. And he said, you know, I think a lot about that. He said, I think that, you know, what ultimately what I'm interested in is how we're constrained by the boundaries of language to talk about really, really intense things. And intense things can be sadness and intense things can be laughter. So really what I'm interested in is how to use language to, to deal with both of those things. I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that, on the relationship between, like, you're, you know, you're really funny and your songs are also kind of funny and they're also devastatingly sad. Do you have any thoughts on the relationship between those two things? I think you can see the hole in the middle, but because the delivery is so sad that I think people miss the humor in it a lot. I think, I think my songs are funny. Like actually Bo Burnham and I were talking about this where I was like, you know, I was like, there's that, that funny feeling song. I wish I wrote it. And he was like, he was like, I think your songs are super funny. You know, (laughs) he was like, he was like, I feel like, and he kind of acted like he was going to offend me. He was like, some lyrics seem like they're supposed to be funny. I was like, no, 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 no. They're supposed to be funny. Totally. Um, but I thought that was hilarious uh, that someone was like, are you trying to be funny? I was like, definitely. Yeah. I've always, I, just, I, I, kind of, I kind of thought it went without saying that your songs were funny. For sure. I hope so. Do you see any relationship between the ability to write funny songs and write sad songs? Or at least do you see what I mean that sometimes they're often contained in the same people? Yeah, I just don't think they're as binary. I think it's like, and I, I totally know what you mean. I think um, some things that are sad are also funny. I think they go hand in hand. Like the absurdity of feeling so sad about something is funny in itself. Like the, all the embarrassing emotions that you feel when you're sad. Yeah, totally. I think it's easier to be sincere when you're sad. And that's what I mean. And also like, I know a lot of people who use, who deflect sincerity with humor, like goes back into what I was saying about writing about happiness it's just like it's really hard to be like vulnerable so there is something kind of self-protective and like saying something extremely emotional and then like brushing it off with something to make you laugh you asked to walk me home but I had to carry First part of my conversation with the songwriter Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit more from her after the break. We're going to talk a little bit about her relationship between art and activism. We're going to talk a little bit about the time she smashed her guitar on Saturday Night Live, which, as you may know, people have been doing. I don't know. When did Pete Townsend do that? Like in the mid-60s? Apparently, it's still a big deal that she did it. And she has some ideas uh, as to why it's a big deal that she did it on Saturday Night Live. But first, let's listen to some music. This is Phoebe Bridgers. This is Moon Song. Bird at your door 
Phoebe Bridgers and Moonsong. More with Phoebe Bridgers coming up after this on Q. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Power, you're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the songwriter Phoebe Bridgers. The past few years have been just gigantic for Phoebe. She's become her generations like Elliot Smith or, or Bob Dylan or, or PJ Harvey. She's been on tour with her band Boy Genius, the, the band she has with two other songwriters, Julian Baker and Lucy Dacus. They've been selling out massive amphitheaters, singing what they call semi sad music. Here's the thing. I talked to Phoebe uh, back in the spring of last year. It was not that long after she had done a bit of a career milestone. She played Saturday Night Live. And she made some news because during her performance, uh, she smashed a guitar. The way people talked about it after she did it, you'd swear no one had ever done it before, you know, much less for like, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Anyway, she had some interesting things to say about why she thinks it was so controversial that she smashed a guitar and what it was like to get like criticism from rock gods about it. Here's more of my conversation with Phoebe Bridgers. I watched you on Saturday Night Live. I watched that live when it happened. <laughs> and it was great. The show was great. And the songs Thank were you. great. And then I also watched it when you smashed your guitar on stage. And I, to be honest, Phoebe, I didn't think that much of it. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> and then I should just let people know who are listening to this a little bit what went down. Like you smash your guitar on stage, like a million people have done, like a million dudes have done, really. And... There's a lot of people who are kind of mad at you and, and sort of the elder statesmen of rock and roll start going after you a little bit. What was that like on the inside? Uh, nothing. I can honestly tell you, like, it didn't even make me angry for a second. It just, honestly, it was kind of validating because I think I have a lot of, like, uh, I, I think I'm always trying to recognize how lucky I am and, like, I don't know, just, like, as a white person, as like someone who a lot of people listen to my music, I just like it, the, the way that I was treated when I was a kid, like as a young woman in music, quote unquote, uh, I just like don't really see examples of that anymore. Like the way that I was talked down to. Um, and I know a lot of people have it worse. And like, I just, I just don't really think about myself as an oppressed person. I think about myself as like, someone who's been lucky enough to like hire all my friends and be surrounded by people who respect me. So, so to have everybody flip out about this thing, the only dark feeling about it I had was like, damn, we really do have a long way to go. And like these dudes don't even know how dumb they look, you know? Tell me more. What do you mean? We really do have a long way to go. We just like, again, I am like a successful uh, white woman, uh, doing something that like lots of dudes have done. I don't know. Like basically what I'm saying is like, if I was being more extreme or something, like, I don't even want to know, like, I, I don't know. That's just like the tip of the iceberg of what you can do on stage. Um, so it's crazy that I got shit for it. Like, I feel like, I feel like it was the most, um, I don't know, like camp thing I could have possibly done. Like it just, it's crazy that it really filled people's rage. How does it feel in your hands and like wrists when you smash a guitar like that? You know, like I was terrified that I was, I mean, it's so scary to play SNL, especially after, um, you know, that was our first live show uh, <laughs> to people um, because we couldn't go on tour because of COVID. So, you know, we like, literally you know the best show of tour is like the 30th one <laughs> yeah yeah 
Um, so that was really scary. And I never done it before. Well, I did it in dress rehearsal, I guess. Um, and, uh, and I felt pretty confident about it. And then I was doing it and I was like, am I like ripping my clothes? That's what I thought. I thought like my guitar was getting caught on something. Um, uh, it's really fun. Like I would totally do it again. You auctioned off the guitar, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, and you made a hundred thousand dollars with the proceeds going to LGBTQ plus charities. Um, and I know your label had a showcase at South by recently where you addressed how trans rights are being threatened in Texas right now. It's one thing to have a platform, but it's another thing to use your platform for good, especially when it comes to the rights of queer folks. Where does that come from in you? I guess it's kind of related to what we were talking about. Like, I can't imagine what would happen if an openly trans woman smashed a guitar or like, yeah. it, does that make sense? Like, yeah. like I, I've been awarded a lot of privileges in my life uh, culturally. And so it just, I don't know, like this, I mean, it's not to belabor the point, but um, that we're hearing every day, but it is terrifying to me that we're going back in time, you know, the like Roe v. Wade thing. It just, it fills me with like unbridled rage. So it's, so it's just important to me in my life, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I guess I want to ask whether you can deal with some of that rage through your music, but that also feels sort of arbitrary, you know what I mean? Mm, I mean, I'm lucky to have a platform to be able to direct people's attention, but I don't know. It's insane to me that like the individuals are now responsible for what's yeah. happening on like... The, this national scale like it's cool to be able to mobilize people with you know a following on the internet or whatever like maggie rogers and i uh raised a bunch of money for stacy abrams and it's cool but you're like damn <laughs> i can't believe that i have this much power <laughs> you know i'm like they have this power too as in oppressive people more probably so it's just kind of terrifying. It's like I literally sing indie rock music. Yeah, like why is it on me? Exactly. And and it's really, 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 really scary. I mean, but it brings to mind you won the Trailblazer Award at the 2022 Billboard Women in Music Awards. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play a clip from your acceptance speech. Uh, this is for my mom who waited outside of venues um, in her car for hours in the middle of the night to make sure I got home safe from shows. And... Yesterday, I asked if it would be okay if I talked a little bit about domestic violence on stage. And she was like, yeah, totally. It's your experience, too. And I was like, cool. I'm going to say something like, thank you to my mom for surviving unimaginable abuse and violence. And she was like, but it is imaginable. Uh, Too many people can imagine it. So... Thank you, Mom, for showing me how to survive. I was really struck by that line that it is imaginable. So I was wondering if I could ask you, you know, how it felt to get that award for sure, but get the chance to dedicate it to your mom, who, by the way, was on stage with you. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Um, I think, I don't know, like when I was thinking about like a trailblazer, it's weird to like refer to myself uh, like that. Um, like all the reference points that I have in the face of adversity are from watching my mom live through so much bullshit. How did you feel um, to you when you got off the stage? Uh, pretty good. I mean, my mom, <laughs> I think my mom was like over it and not, not like in an unintense way um, by the time we were there because I told her I was going to say that. And so, you know, she just got to like wave to Bonnie Raitt and take pictures with people and um, have a nice time. So <laughs> hopefully it was just fun. I wanted to talk about the song you wrote, Sidelines, for the TV adaptation of Sally Rooney's novel, Conversation with Friends. First off, I just I really love the song. I was really struck by when I heard it, um, so much so that I sort of forgot that it was based on anything, that it wasn't just coming from you. I'm not afraid of anything at all. Not that. Can you tell me a little bit about writing it? 
Yeah, so I, I, so it's an idea that my drummer Marshall had, and it, it's interesting because, like, we used to go out, Marshall and I, like oh, yeah. we met when we were young, and um, like you know, we've been best friends ever since. I think it, it, it you know, like our relationship has only grown over time, but we also both kind of fell in love at similar times. So he was writing this song about like with different people. I mean, so it's also kind of meta because that's a little bit about what the show is about. Um, but like, I got this ask to make music for this show. And he was like, what about sidelines? What about that idea? And I was like, Oh man. <laughs> so we got to write it together and think about the ways that you just kind of show up for the world when you're in love. Um, like not basically using the metaphor of like, you're not afraid of anything because you have no stakes in life and then not being afraid of having stakes in life later, you know? No, I don't. Sorry. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay. I was trying my best there, but I, I, I'm, 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 I'm still a bit stuck. Can you, can you, can you explain that again? Like when you're not invested in the world, yeah, you're not afraid of anything. When you know? you're not invested in the world, you're not afraid of anything. Yeah, because there's, there's nothing yeah, to be afraid like, of because you don't believe in anything. I mean, in the darkest way ever, you're like, I could walk, walk down the street and get hit by a bus. And that's just like, that's just what happened. I, um, I have felt that way. I know that feeling. Totally. I got you. So it's that feeling versus the feeling of um, being you know, in love with someone or seeing yourself through someone else's eyes and being like, you know, I'm actually not afraid to like get sober. I'm not afraid to call my dad. <laughs> like you just, it applies then to like the opposite feeling like the, the, um, it, like being afraid of nothing is also kind of being afraid of everything. Sorry, not to get so heady, but, but that's genuinely how I feel. Like sometimes it takes, somebody that you like really love and respect shining their light on you for you to be like, maybe I am cool. And maybe it is worth it to, to try to make my life better. Yeah. Maybe we need to see ourselves through the eyes of, of somebody else. There was a great, there was a great songwriter here who I was once beaten up on myself pretty bad to him. And as I can do. And he, I found out later it was, it's like a really well used line, especially in psychotherapy or in psychology, but I had never heard it before. And he said, uh, oh, come on, man. That's my friend Tom you're talking about. Oh, yeah. I've heard that one. It's like it's like guidance counselor stuff. I love using that. I, I use it on Julian and Lucy, my friends, all the time. <laughs> but it is. But there's something to that, right? What you just said. Totally. The idea that only through seeing how other people see us, like I'm, you know, it's, it's only seeing through seeing other through seeing yourself as other people see you then you can start to feel that value in your own life. Yes. And if you, and, but only if you're ready for it, Yeah. because I also think when you hate yourself and then someone likes you, you're like, what the f is wrong with you? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like you stop being attracted to anybody who pays attention to you because you're like, ah, no, you're not smart. Phoebe, we're, we're such big fans of you here. And I, I love getting the chance to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. Boy Genius and Not Strong Enough. Boy Genius, uh, the big touring indie rock group of the summer, uh, comprised of Lucy Dacus, Julian Baker, and Phoebe Bridgers. All three past Q guests. Maybe that's how they met. <laughs> maybe that's what they maybe that's what they had in common, Canadian Public Radio. Before that, my conversation with Phoebe Bridgers, uh, and what a joy it is to talk to her. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk to her again in the new year. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I, I love this story. I didn't know about the story because uh, I didn't I didn't do this interview. But when I found out about it, I just loved it because it, it's all about how you show love for your family. And if you asked Shane Ghostkeeper how he shows love for his family, he'll tell you about a record he just made called Songs for My People. Yes, I'm asking you out, girl, to the country dance, gonna make you twirl. What's that, honey? Uh? 
Well, yes, I know how mm, You doubt me, girl As if there was a reputation preceding the situation Suggesting that uh, that's Shane Ghostkeeper uh, with a, a bit of music from his new record. That's a song called I Know How. So sh- here's what you might need to know about Shane Ghostkeeper. He doesn't typically sound like that. He makes in his band Ghostkeeper, I don't know, like experimental post-rock music. Not classic country music, but he's talked about this record being a, quote, gift to his people, an exploration of the country and western and roots records that surrounded him since childhood. And there's nothing like the sound of someone going home again. Shane Ghostkeeper joined our Q guest host, Talia Schlanger, to talk about it and to tell an incredible story to set up one of the songs. Here's their conversation. Hi, Shane. Welcome to Q. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. And congratulations. Your band Ghostkeeper Ghostkeeper got a Polaris Music Prize nomination this year for your album Multidimensional Culture. That's a big deal. Yeah, right. That's cool. It's yeah. nice to be back on the, the player's radar. <laughs> it's great. And now you've got something completely different, to my ear anyway, leaning leaning very country. So what made you want to go this route with your new album? <laughs> well, um, like you mentioned in the in the intro, I was heavily steeped in country music since since, since my birth, especially with my grandparents. Um I, I was the my grandpa's firstborn grandson, and so he really spent a lot of time with me. Took me under his wing, showed me how to work, showed me how to build fences and dig post holes and take care of livestock. And I was so grateful for that having that um, experience. And um, all that time was spent being surrounded by Hank Williams Sr., Johnny Horton. And then with my parents, my dad was Conway Twitty. My mom was Tanya Tucker. Hmm. And um, so, but once I got into my teen years, I started getting into these ideals of punk and more avant um, approaches to pop songwriting and arrangement and just how wide open it can really be and how deep I can explore my own personal soul rather than getting into a genre you know, as an artist. Mm. Um, so in that regard, I did also by that, that later and I started picking up my guitar around 16. And by that time I was playing country cover songs for my family, my grandparents and my aunties and uncles like Hank, Hank senior. So they've been expecting all this time and waiting for me to put out my own country record because that's what they loved for me to play at the campfires and at the weddings and the, you know, all the family get-togethers. and So this record's been a long time coming. That's why it's my gift for, for my people up north. Interesting. That, is that that the, the my people reference? Is that to, to your family or to your community or all of the above? All of the above, yeah. Um, I was raised by a, a pretty large community. I was based in high level. I'm a townie, as, as they say, in Paddle Prairie, Métis Settlement, where my dad grew up. And then my mom grew up in a farming community uh, called Rocky Lane. So that whole encompassing community is, is, my, is my people, all the way to Fort Vermillion. You made this record for your people, for your family. I hope that they liked it. Like, how have they been reacting to the, to the album? <laughs> They're loving it. Yeah. I think it's like, finally, it's making some normal music. <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting that you had to sort of go, go away, get really experimental, and then find your way back. And I'm kind of curious, like aside from the aside from the nostalgic value of having grown up with with country and having these beautiful memories of of your your grandfather in particular, like what is it about country music, traditional country music that that speaks to you on an artistic level? Um, well, it, it's in particular the the old classic country that mm-hmm. really, you know, has a um, is in my bones now because it, you know, it touched me in, in, in ways that are attached to my childhood memories, you know? So I guess that's what's, what's called nostalgia and, and it'll forever have a, a place in um, marking my um, a glorification and romanticizing my people from up North to my community and, and, and our, our culture and how I was raised. There's so many beautiful tracks from the album, and you're going to introduce us to hun- Hunger Strike. I understand that that's the first first country song that you ever wrote. That's right. Yeah. Wow. It is for my grandpa, and my grandma, and it's documenting the passing of my grandpa, 
Well, and, and my grandma, who passed away first, um, a few years before my grandpa. They were both um, in their 90s. Yeah, they were. They lived a long, a long life um, of hard work and family dedication. And uh, once my grandma passed, my grandpa was extremely heartbroken um, and self-admittedly turned grouchy <laughs> and, uh, and and miserable. And then you know, just and also the old age too, where of you know now we can't drive around anywhere and walk around and work at the farm chop wood, haul wood, all those things were taken away from him all at once. And uh, he was just uh, hit really hard with loneliness. And then so after uh, a few years at the most, I think, he gave everyone a phone call, including me, and, and said that he had enough. He was done, you know, suffering with his loneliness um, and that he was going on a hunger strike. And then he, uh, he kept his word. He didn't have a drop of water or a bit of food and refused IV once he en- ended up in the hospital after, a, you know, a week of, of that on his own at home. So then they took him into the hospital, refused ID and asked for um, the blessing from his daughters and his, and his sons to make sure that the doctors did not put him on, on IV. So it was a, a mutual agreement that we all understood and respected. And his family, um, extended family, friends came from all over the countryside and had a chance to come and, you know, say goodbye and have a visit with him. And I think he lasted like a week like that in the hospital and and luckily we made it up and our first son was already, I don't think a year and a half or so, Sarah and I made it up. And then on a beautiful sunny afternoon, um, with me by his side, holding his hand and his daughters and his sons and some other of uh, his grandkids, my sisters, uh, he took his last breath. And then at that moment, my mom revealed to me that that day was his and my grandmother's wedding anniversary. <laughs> so and I was floored. If it just it floored me. Yeah. That level of that level of romance and love was uh awe-inspiring. And I always knew that eventually I would um uh find a way to to tell that story and to honor it in a in a musical fashion that uh he and my grandma I think would enjoy. Oh, I'm floored by I'm floored by that story. I mean, and and when you say to take that story and to to tell turn it into something that he and your grandma could enjoy, I mean, the story itself sounds like it could have turned into a, a, a sad song or a, a melancholy song. And yet, what we're about to hear is so joyful and maybe even celebratory. So, why did you decide to to tell that story through this kind of musical lens? Um, well, first of all, to me, that type of spiritual feat is worth celebrating. And it's something I'll always be so extremely proud of from my grandpa. And especially because he lived such a long life of being a special person to everyone in the family. He, uh, like I was saying, just because I was his firstborn grandson, that I felt the guy had the most special mm-hmm. <laughs> really with him but but no this this is how everyone describes him they everyone had a special relationship with him he made everyone feel feel special and then that was just uh you know the icing on the cake for for a way to um you know pass on to uh to whatever may happen next and um and it was all about um love and dedication and romance so that's something to celebrate in my mind it wasn't sad at all. I mean, other than once everyone got over, you know, grieving and and uh, and missing him so much, and then it was appropriate now to to celebrate. That's just gorgeous. Um, and congratulations on on celebrating your grandparents in this way. Would you mind introducing the song for us? This is "Hunger Strike," um, the first country song I ever wrote uh, about my grandpa and grandma, and I hope you enjoy it. 
I watched you walk away from this earth. Now I watch the clock and it hurts. Yeah, it ticked, but well, it don't talk. No, the way you do, soothe my soul. Nah. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I know. Yes, I. record is excellent excellent melodies excellent playing beautiful personal gorgeous lyrics so personal but wonderful shane ghostkeeper's debut solo country album i hope he makes a bunch of them it's called songs for my people that's a song called hunger strike the album is available wherever you get your music and that is it for the show today um i don't know what's more uh impressive that sugar sammy can entertain people in both english and french or that Sugar Sammy can offend people in both English and, and French. But Sugar Sammy is one of the most interesting comedians in Canada right now. He is a gigantic star in his home of Quebec, a gigantic star in France right now. And he'll be here to tell you how humor can cross language boundaries. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.